The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Here's your host, Giles Palmer. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Webinar from the i3 team. And in this conversation we had in October involved the Mavericks. Now, the Mavericks are a Facebook group and they took over i3. It was a coup d'etat and they had a roundtable discussion and gave scientific top tips. They did, however, start by ripping up my script, which I gave them. But as the conversation led on to, everyone is talking about staffing levels. It seems everyone is hiring at this moment. So here we'll pick up the conversation where this group of embryologists are talking about the profession of embryology and how it's perceived today as a career. I do have a question though, when we were talking about training and this is for all of y'all out there, you know, we see my, my uh, lead tech is getting, finishing up her doctorate at CSU. So hopefully I can retire. But the point is, is that, um, you know, she went to uh, the under the master's program there for uh, assisted reproductive technology. And a lot of her people that she went to school with have burned out. Like they have not, they have not stayed in embryology. And so I'm just curious, what is, what are you seeing as far as the people you're hiring, the how long they stay and whether or not it's a good fit? Because I'm not joking when I say we talk to these people a lot about, you can all be able to do something, but whether it's a good fit for you, I'm not seeing a lot of that come through my lab. I'm not seeing it being a good fit. This science is not a good fit for the majority of people I see come through my lab. So I don't know. I'm and I'm asking sincerely what you're seeing. Strange, like that. You know, it was mentioned that you know the more mature people of us, you know, didn't think about work and life mm-hmm. balance, which of course is what the younger people are. And we did this study on mental right. health, in, you know, which showed clear, you know, differences between the you know the younger and the older embryologists. And it's such a narrow sort of like training course it's 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 very difficult to difficult to like sidestep isn't it okay after so many years it's very difficult to you know do a different branch of science so i do see myself quite a few of the younger ones just like opting out you know it could be many reasons but mainly just to do with you know like the like the demands i wouldn't go as far as to say it's like burnout but i see a lot more turnover with the younger people you know and they go off and they do something else whereas you know, us, we just plod on, you know, and, and you know, we work weekends and we work so many hours. So I think that's very, the two differences in, in those generations. I don't know what the others have seen. Maybe it's a generation thing also. I think a new generation is softer. I mean, I don't know, uh, back when I was uh, being trained, uh, not that I'm that old, but um, I remember, you know, overworking was almost like a badge. It was almost like, uh, you know, it was a good thing that you're overworked. It was a good thing that you're tired because you're working too hard. And that's the sort of the mentality that we had, I think, uh, back in the olden days. Uh, well, now things, are, and that was not a good thing. I'm, just, I'm not saying it was a good thing. It was a bad thing because now I'm trying to kick some bad habits and I'm feeling guilty when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing something. I'm feeling guilty, but we're, we're not discussing my psychological problems right now. Um, but the new generation is uh, it's different. And um, 
sometimes I, I, I see, well, in, I, I think in our line of work, someone needs to be a little bit obedient with regards to training. Where they're being trained, they need to listen and they need to, they need to understand that sometimes when, they, when we tell them off, it's not because we're trying to be mean or destroy their lives or their psychology, but because they need to understand some things and there's no room for mistake in what we do. It's not that, you know, oh, I'm having a bad day and I just push the dish a little bit further away or I forgot. There's no room in, in, in our line of job to say I forgot, is there? I mean, really, it's not. That's why we're, we're stress junkies. But I think uh, it's, it's difficult for them to tolerate that well. They don't, they don't get it all that as much as we did, I find. But I'm wondering if they have the what I call the fire in the belly. Like, do they are they interested? Are they interested in the science? Are they passionate about what they're doing? I did embryology for a while too, but I look at sperm every day, and I'm still fascinated by it. I just think this is amazing, and and maybe I'm simple-minded, but the point is, I love what I do. I have a passion for what I do. And I've been interested in reproductions for as long as I can remember, even in high school, but there's no passion there. I'm feeling like sometimes yeah. we just don't get, they're like, oh, I'll go sell real estate. You know, and it's like- Yeah, but that's, why, that's, yeah. Yeah, but that's why I think that, you know, you and most of us here, you know, all of us have been in it for so long because it is a passion. If there's not, then it is a natural weeding out process, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other jobs and, you know, and you mentioned which other jobs are the go-to. Well. I haven't seen many go for like another job, like, you know, to be like a clinician or a doctor, because that would be even more hours, but that would be better like rewards. You know, I've seen people go into industry, people go into like, you know, like the, you know, like the retail side of, you know, of that. Um, and, of, and of course you have to think about, um, and it was mentioned on, on the Facebook post as well. It's very difficult to balance your family life with this, you know, especially if I may say like- It's very difficult to have mothers. <laughs> mothers and and childcare. There was a very interesting post that we saw on Mavs the other day, and it was about you know the time that you have to get to work. You know you have to have a supportive family around you to, to actually mm -hmm. do that. So you are passionate about your job, and you have stuck at it this long despite what else has happened. So I think the people that aren't sort of leave you know pretty quickly in their in their career. This is a job, and I know that so many of us view it as a lifestyle, and I understand that, and I'm guilty of it but they do understand that this is a job. And if it doesn't fit in what they want their life to look like, they, they do move on. And I think the important distinction here is, is that you use the word career and Ashley used the word job and they're markedly different. And I don't think people you know, don't care about career anymore. They wanna work a job and that's fine. You can do that, but understand they're different. If you have a career and you're building your life based on that, you build knowledge based on that and skill based on a career because it's a career. It's what you do. A job is nine to five. Yeah. The other thing that people have failed to mention a little bit is salaries. So, you know, when I was setting out to, to switch over from a research career into, you know, a clinical embryology career, the increase in salary or potential increase in salary was huge. It was very attractive and I was kind of looking at a lot of student loans and everything. And I was like, okay, I can study the same molecule forever or I can own a house and, you know, keep my wife happy and so on. And, and that was it really weighed into my, my decision uh, heavily. And then once I sort of, you know, dipped my feet in a little bit more, I, I really became attracted to, you know, kind of the, the more um, personal elements of it and, and, you know, seeing exactly what your work is, 
is resulting in. But I look now, and I mean, you look at the salary surveys, salaries for an average embryologist have barely moved in 10 years or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, you look at, you know, a programmer or, you know, I mean, a freaking Instagram model, and, and they're making more money than our embryologists were. It used mm-hmm. to be a, a lucrative career where you had a nice car and you bought a house. And now it's not that far above, you know, I manage a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly. And, yeah. and to me, that points to corporation and, and then the trickle down effect of well, how know, that works. Yeah. And I think physicians don't, yep. you know, we fight with the physicians constantly over this. I mean, I know Brian does, I do, but you know, the physicians, That's- their salaries are pretty set, but they're also really high. So mm-hmm. they're not going to change by, you know, 20 percentage points over 10 years. Maybe they do, but not often. But it's more important for the person who's only making, you know, $60,000 a year that that actually happens as they develop in their career. And I think that that's a disconnect. And I think pulling that away from the physicians may be an important step that needs to happen. Certainly a discussion that's gone around. Yeah, that's a great point. And Betsy, I 100% agree with you. I, I don't see the passion anymore. And Jerry, what you brought up, I left IVF part reason because only other embryologists knew what, how, how rewarding my career, quote, career was and what I was doing for patients. Um, but as far as like from a monetary perspective, you know, over the 10 years I was in the lab, my salary didn't change. I mean, you know, the last hospital gave me little raises here and there, but didn't change as much as it is where it's now, I think. Um, but it, it could be higher. It could be better. Um, but only other embryologists understood how hard I worked, how much of a passion was for me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think we've lost that. And, you know, I, I'm about to drive to a, a teach nursing students. And and Betsy, you're so right. They, don't, they think about what, what the least amount of time they can work for the most amount of money they can make. And embryology doesn't fit in that line sometimes with some of them uh, and healthcare in general. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of sad to see that, I think. You know, in a lot of ways, we get what we pay for. And if we don't have the resources, you know, I mean, that's something I struggle with, right? I, I, my practice doesn't give a, a high hiring budget. So I'm forced to go to untrained personnel. And I'm finding that, you know, going back to the, the, the point where the, you know, some of the younger, the younger kids coming through are soft. I don't know why it is, but, you know, with the younger kids that haven't had any experience or don't know that they want to follow a, a reproductive sciences background, and they're just kind of looking for a job. It seems like they come in, they spend a year, they realize, okay, there's something better. Maybe it's IT, maybe it's HR, maybe it's, you know, working for Facebook or Indeed, you know, you know they don't have the drive and they don't have the, 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 they don't have the drive, they don't have the stamina and it's, oh, almost, stamina. you know, I see their attention. It's, it's like, they don't have the attention to focus at the task yep. at hand. And I wonder if that's just something, is, is that a generational thing because they have devices and their, and their brains are wired to, you know, changing, changing what they're looking at so constantly and so rapidly that they have trouble focusing. Um, but you know, I see it over and over again. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, if I, you know, if I could, if I had a higher budget and could pick someone that maybe had more background or more experience and knew what they wanted to do in this industry, I wouldn't run into that problem, but you know, it's challenging with the young ones, you know, especially retaining them. You know, I think that's a big problem in our field too. We, we bring them in green, but then you know, if we can't compensate them appropriately once they're trained, they're flight risks. Have you noticed, because you said about flight risk, that since the pandemic, there's been a clear definition between clinics who've treated their embryologists well and they've retained them and ones which haven't. And that's certainly true for the UK. And I did hear that that's possibly the case in the States as well. There's been a lot of movement going on. 
Um, yeah. Is that true or not, would you say? Yeah, I do, I'm leaving my clinic after 10 years. Wow. Yeah, well, there I you go. the same yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, I've been looking for a while in, in all different echelons and uh, the people that are on the market right now are the less employable candidates. The I think the solid candidates are being compensated and retained. And, uh, you know, the ones that aren't, aren't retained for whatever reason are the ones that are available in the market right now. So I'll tell you something interesting, though. I completely agree with you, Brian. It's a gen I, I believe it's a generation thing. Mm -hmm. And I think this generation, and I'm sorry to say so, but just because I see a lot of students, they have a sense of entitlement that I haven't seen. And they think that, you know, it's your, it's your job to teach them. It's your job to invest on them invest your time and your effort and, and everything in them and then they will decide it's unbelievable and uh, the ethics are completely different but I'll tell you I have two students that actually they were being trained and they left to go and become medics because of the money thing because they're like look you know as an embryologist I'm always going to be underpaid the, the stress is enormous we're not being acknowledged to the extent that we want to be acknowledged and i'll be better off to become uh, you know an uh, an rei my best hire became a physician's assistant i mean he was fantastic and he would have done really well in, in the field but he he sought after the dollars and i, I understand i i felt bad he left but uh, i understand the movie made i think that at some point isn't it our responsibility to change this around especially the fact that embryologists are being underpaid for what we're doing and for that's another topic. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's universal. It's all over the world. It's the same thing. Everyone is nagging about this, and it's true. I think that things in Europe are different in comparison to things in the States. I mean, I'd say things are better in Europe than they are in the UK, which aren't as good as the States. But I would definitely say there are huge potentials to have a good salary. You have to stick with it. You have to be good at it. So that's where I think is a starting point. And you have to invest in your time, whether you're young or older. So that's why it's a fantastic job. You know, and I could tell stories that, about starting salaries. I think it's fantastic that embryologists are getting well paid. They should get well paid if they deserve to and they're putting in the time. But it is one of the jobs that they can talk on the level to like a clinician. And that's why it's so popular. But they have the possibility. Now, there's embryologists, especially in Europe, who are like shareholders in a clinic and good on them. But that's, but that doesn't come about like that. It's because they work for it and they've got the scientific backing as well. So, you know, I agree with you, Liesl. I think it's a fantastic job and people have to move. You have to move to what suits you. And I, I think you're exactly right. People don't want to move. I moved two continents when I was younger, you know, and that's the passion that you have to take for. So if you're dedicated, I think to tell a cliche, cream will will rise to the top, won't it? And you will find those positions there. I think because I I own my company, I built it from the ground up. I work every day forever and then start getting big enough. I have staff, but what I've noticed in the hiring practices lately is, is that they'll start and say, okay, where's my room for advancement? And I'm thinking there's three of us here. You know, there's me, <laughs> I'm at the top. And then I have a lab supervisor and there's you. And everybody's treated the same, you know, and, but not salary wise, but there's not much discretion differences in the salaries. But for some of these people, it's really important for them to climb this proverbial fictional ladder. Like they think it's important. And yet when I am training these people, I'm thinking to myself, I think it's the interest in the science. I just don't think it's there. I think the acid test is, is how soon they leave of an afternoon. You know, you'll always find people that'll, you know, stay a bit, but people that, 
you know, for use of a better word, you know, are watching the clock, that never sort of bodes well. So there we have it. We always like a bit of a moan. And when the embryologists get together, then usually what they like to talk about is, of course, staffing levels and our profession. Another thing which was spoken about quite often on I3 is safety and witnessing. And this was no exception. For the last webinar of the year, it was sponsored by Zymote. And in this snippet, you'll hear us talking about the perceived witnessing steps and various aspects about getting it right in the laboratory. Great job, everybody. Great job. Well, well done, everyone. Incidentally, they, a pregnant woman would not be home. So I didn't sort of go into the rest of the history of hanging in, in England in the 18th century, but but um, uh, John Hunter didn't, didn't use actually the uterus from a hung pregnant woman to do his vasculature of the placenta. Um, the way it went was that, uh, and most female, so females usually through counterfeiting or murdering husbands would be sentenced to hanging. So the counterfeiting was treason. And if they, if they were pregnant, they would, uh, the, the, there were some objections to hanging a pregnant woman, so they would let them uh, deliver and then they'd hang them. Oh, nice. And, nice and, that, and that was done, a quote, for the a sake of decency. <laughs> so, That's charming. We're, so we're okay. Yeah, and you can see that, you know, like by the questions, but were there any questions which you didn't get a chance to answer? I mean, there was a lot for you, Cynthia, as well. And, uh, you know, we didn't get a chance to, you know, scratch the surface of that. I mean, did, did you see the ones about witnessing? An interesting saying about the tip, saying about you can label dishes and tubes, but you don't label the tip, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an area, you know, ripe for improvement, you know, without sort of divulging anything, I'll say this company is sort of working on something in that area that would take that into account. So what's that question, a loaded question? I think, didn't or, put the question in, so I, you know, and I, I didn't even see it actually uh, on the list. I mean, I just thought it was interesting, you know, and of course you're working on something, of course you are, you know, carry on inseminating, that's the thing. The accountability, so how do you account, you know, from the, the microscope to the incubator? You, like take a biopsy dish, right? So you take the embryo out, you know, you you take the embryo, you put it into another dish, you take the dish, you bring it to the, you know, all of these different sets. We don't check things in and out of the, the, the ICSI station. We don't take things in and out of the, you know, the inverted microscope from a biopsy. We don't track them back and forth to the incubator. I think we're making enormous strides in this area, but there's a lot of holes, right, that we can plug. And so how do you plug the holes? You know, what is what is the way you can use technology, you know, have better assurances? How do we take from A to B? How do we go from the patient all the way back to the patient and kind of make some assurances that we're doing the right thing. I have a, an idea. You may all guess what it is, but as far as our contribution to this equation, like you said, Cynthia, with all these variables and these moments of potential opportunities, you know, fair. Call them opportunities fair. Like how do we remove or eliminate? Yeah, or yeah. When, it come, opportunities yeah. Fair? when it comes to firm, at least in the andrology portion, you know, our device is, you know, basically self-contained. You're not moving samples from container to container to container. So just by definition, the chain of custody is is much shorter. The path is short. Yeah. So I mean, as far as our contribution to this, like you said, this um, complex equation, so to speak, compared to density gradient or really any other method where you're taking the sample, manipulating it, moving it, putting it in a centrifuge, maybe with other samples, maybe not. You know, all these risk factors are are mitigated through our device, and that's one of the strengths, especially in this time that we live in, where like safety is pretty important 
in the lab. You know, one of the things that, you know, attracted me even to the company was the simplicity of it, right? You know, I've taken, you know, I've taken the sample from this container, this container, this container, this container, you know, all of these different steps, and I've shortened that path, you know. And so, you know, if people are going to, people are going to debate and do studies and improve patient outcome standpoint, we can do that all day. But the fact that can't be disputed is the fact that I'm shortening the number of steps and I'm, I'm improving the safety of that sample getting from uh, to the dish. So it's, we're eliminating opportunities for error. And I love that. Yeah, because I never thought of that because um, I'm going to ask a little bit about labeling after that, but of course, in a traditional sense, you'd have like, you know, like one or two gradients, some people have three. So there's stickers on those. Then you, then, then, you, then you take a trip to the centrifuge. You'd have a wash. You'd probably have another wash. And then you have like a final solution. You have to introduce something there. So so I get what you're saying, Nick. And it, it's a probably silly question, but there is space on there for like an RFID tag, obviously, yeah? Because you have to put it into like, you know, the field of view or so. Yeah, you know, <laughs> happen to have this, you know, right? right. When we talk about error, most of the error is human error which has a sort of hoping that things might become more and more robotic as time goes by. And it sort of, it, it would appear that something like ICSI could easily be made robotic, but you know, that's easy for me to say, but, but the, 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 with the amount of manipulation that's done in a ICSI cycle or with conventional IVF, just the number of times something is handled, it's just, it's sure. begging, it's begging for mistake. And it just seems something that um, could, could relatively easily go robotic. Well, at least, being, at least very, parts of it. People are saying that it's not so much like microfluidic device as like a, it's similar to swim up, but it's just a swim along. So how would you address that? Because of course, when I first started IVF, you know, it was all swim ups, and they were a bit and a bit tiddly, and they did and they and they do take a bit of skill to do, you know, to do properly. So how would you sort of address that and say, well, it's not really microfluidics; it's sort of a swim along. Well, you're right; it's technically not microfluidic. And when we think of conventionally what microfluidics involved, that would be some extra um, machine or source of flow, providing a source of flow of some sort. Our our initial device, which is called the Zymo ICSI was this little, I have one, but I'm not going to dig and waste our time. It's a little, little chip, basically. That technically is microfluidic. But what we found with the next generation device, which is our Zymo multi devices, these provide the same exact outcome as far as the DNA fragmentation of the sperm, just through a different mechanism. So to the second point of your question, as far as sort of a glorified swim up, which people compare it to all the time, it's, it is very different for reasons I mentioned before. We're removing the human element. We're removing the uh, the dexterity element from the equation. And we all know that with swim up, when you're trying to pull off that top layer, you may have, you know, you may have pulled off more than just that. We don't, we know, we do know that with our device, the sperm coming out of it are, are still lower than swim up. They're lower than both density gradient and swim up or either of those combined. And sometimes, Due to the added centrifugation of the sample in combination, the DNA fragmentation actually goes up. But the main difference between our device being sort of a different kind of swim up is the membrane itself and the barrier that that provides. So the sperm are going to swim through the device. They're going to, of course, go up or follow edges. And unless they're swimming at the right trajectory, they will or will not get through the micropores present in this membrane. 
So a lot of the sperm are kind of bounced back down to the seminal plasma. And the ones that do get through, for one reason or another, are oftentimes near 0% uh, DNA fragmentation, even with samples where we, we reduced it X amount with you know density gradient, X amount with swim up. With us, it's like if we had a bar graph, it would be so small that you can barely see our category. So it's it different because there's, there's this barrier and it's also a combination of the parameters of the device, time that it spends in the incubator and the temperature, the whole system coming together. Um, and we've kind of zeroed it in where, or found that sweet spot in the magic recipe where for whatever reason, the sperm coming out of our device, that much higher in quality, um, even if maybe the quantity isn't exactly the same as from a different uh, method. One of my colleagues would say, with density gradient, you get a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And all we're doing is just removing the good and the bad, or the bad and the ugly, and we're keeping the, the best. So there you have a behind the scenes take from two of our sessions. All the speakers' names will be in the show notes if you want to look them up later on. We've already started our webinar program for 2022, which you can find on our website. As always, we'd love to hear from you and your experiences. So please email us at info at ivfmeeting.com. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, then please leave us a review to help others know that it's worth a listen. The easiest way to do this is in Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.